Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. Hi, uh, I just finished recording something about the Shoal Mesha, but I want to append this to the very beginning. I just want to thank a friend of mine for sending me some uh, articles that are uh, were of great help and uh, from New York, and that's uh, Benjamin Goldstein, soon to be Benjamin Goldstein, Ph.D. in um, YU, and uh, thanks a lot to him, and Mazel Tov him on the birth of his new son, Azaria, probably also soon to be a Ph.D., and uh, with that, I'll let you go now to the full recording. Hi, since it's Wednesday, I have to do one of the yard site things this week. I see... Is the artist of somebody you probably never heard of or know very little about, of all the different names here. And that's the Shoal of Meshev, the famous Rabbi Yosef uh, Shoal Nathanson, Nathanson. I don't think it's such a household word, even though he was a gigantic uh, goddol long ago. This is a, somebody who was a big rabbi in Poland, in Galicia, in the 1800s, 1810, I think, 1808 to 1875. Live right through the 19th century. Now, this is what you call the Galaxy Honors. Maybe you've heard of this. Maybe you didn't. Chances are you don't know what I'm talking about. There used to be a country called Poland, right? Not the Poland that you have today, but something that was called the Kingdom of Poland that existed long ago. And that's where all the Jews ran. The Jews were kicked out of Ashkenazic Europe back in the 1500s or so. And this Kingdom of Poland became the place where all the Ashkenazic Jews, almost all of them anyway, located themselves, and there for hundreds of years. This kingdom of Poland was gigantic compared to the regular Poland today. It's Poland, plus the Ukraine, plus Belarus, plus Lithuania, Latvia. It's a big piece of territory. And the Jews prospered there, without going into too many details. I'll make this a lecture. And uh, that's where the main center of Yiddishkeit was. No question about it, this was the main center of Torah learning. No question about it. That's where the Hasidic movement popped up, all the different movements. Now, Poland, this kingdom of Poland I'm talking about, disappeared because the nearby countries swallowed it up. The Poles were too busy doing stupid things, and without, again, without going through too many details, the three neighboring empires were able to partition Poland between them, simply move in and take over a piece of their territory, and there was nothing the Poles could do anything about it. And so, in, this all happened in the 1700s. The first partition was 1772, the second partition was 1793, it doesn't matter. By the time, let's say, for example, you get to the 1800s, which is what we're talking about, the country of Poland, the kingdom of Poland, no longer existed. Most of it was in Russia, and that's what I mentioned last week with the Ritzel Khan Inspector. Uh, that became part of the Russian Empire. A small piece of it went to Prussia, Germany. That's where Rabbi Kivager lived, for example, in Posen area. And then one big slice... Not the biggest part, but a nice size slice of territory went to the old Austrian Empire, the Habsburg Empire that people have forgotten about because it disappeared after the First World War. But for many centuries, it used to be this big empire smack in the middle of Europe, in the central Europe, called the Austrian Empire. And that means it was the empire ruled by the House of Austria, not by the Austrian people, a Habsburg family. And sometimes it's called Austria-Hungary. That's the name they took later. 
and the Austrian Empire annexed a province of Poland, a big piece of it called Galicia. And that means that the Jews who lived there from the 1770s down to the First World War, which is a long time, uh, those Jews had their own sort of character and special development and were subject to different cultural influences than Jews in the other parts of Poland that were belonged to, let's say, for Russia or for Germany. And that's where you get the term the Galtzianers. Now, <clears throat> I remember growing up, and if you went back years ago, people would say, like, it's the Litvaks. Oh, they know how to learn, you know. The Galtzianers, that's garnished, you know, it's, it's, it's a put-down. It, it won't marry a Galtzianer, that sort of thing. All which is ridiculous anyway, but used to talk like that. But the truth is, it's baloney. Some of the biggest Talmud Chacham, and I'm talking about pure learning now, some of the biggest Talmud Chacham around were Galtzianers. As a matter of fact, the whole Lithuanian yeshiva system is based, as somebody pointed out, on the Ketzos, the famous Sefer Ketzos HaKoshen, who was a Galtzianer. I was near his grave a couple of years ago. And uh, the Minchas Chinuch was a Galtzianer. And many others. Galicia was a place where lived a half a million Jews, maybe more. That's a lot of people. And in the 1800s, they were subject to all the tensions of modernity, meaning when the modern world and its values hit Eastern Europe, Judaism, Central Europe, so the Jews responded to it in all sorts of ways. And each one of these ways was displayed in Galicia. You had your right-wingers, your left-wingers, your centrists. You had the extreme leftists. This would include the uh, Maskilim who are already atheists. You have people to the right of them who are Maskilim who are not atheists. You have people all the way to the other side who were from, and the, the, then you have the ultra, which will be the Hasidim. In the middle, you have people who are floating. Some people believe that you should have a secular education, but then the question, if you've been Galicia, is should you have a Polish education, should you have a German education, because the Austrian government is German-speaking, Anyway, this is a world where there were a lot of tensions, a lot of fights among the Jews. It's very complicated to describe, and I don't intend to go into it in great detail. But there were a lot of tensions among the Jews, and they formed into different factions and parties. And that's how life was lived in the 1800s, pretty much down to the First World War. After the First World War, it all disappeared, and the map changed, and all these circumstances changed. But Galicia was really something special and unique, um, when it was ruled by Austria and was not part of any other part of Eastern Europe. And that would be, like I said before, from the 1770s down to 1918. And perhaps your parents, grandparents, or relatives come from someplace in Galicia. And more than that, Galicia is two halves, the eastern part and the western part. The western part, which is closer to the Atlantic Ocean, was like Polish, and the eastern part was more Ukrainian, but with the Poles as the rulers and the landlords. A very confusing situation. And into this world, there grew the Sholem Eshev and people like him. There was a rabbinic elite. By that I mean people, and this is very true of Poland and Galicia in particular, you had these elite families that for generation after generation they produced big rabbonim, and they all married money or they married each other, and the result is they kept it in the family, you know? It's very dynastic. The Hasidic movement copied a lot out of those elite um, you know, practices. That's why the Hasidic movement is extremely dynastic. And uh, it's just a very interesting place. Now, Yosef Shaul Nutzen became the rabbi in Lemberg. Uh, Lemberg is the capital of eastern Galicia. I don't know if that means anything to you, but today it's all part of a country called the Ukraine. But at that time, that country didn't exist. It was all part of the Austrian Empire. 
And the capital city of the eastern part is uh, Lemberg, or Lvov, as the Poles call it. Now it's out of Ukraine, so you can, they'll shoot you if you say Lvov. I was there a year and a half ago. It's, uh, now they call it Lviv. That's in Ukrainian. So again, it depends who you are. If you're German, you say Lemberg. If you're Polish, you say Lvov. If you're Ukrainian, you say Lviv. If you're American, you don't even know the place exists. But actually, it's not true. It's a large city. And as I said before, I went on this crazy trip uh, with three or four guys from Teaneck, Dr. Rousman, and some other guys. Uh, with three days, we went from Kovna to Budapest. Don't ask. And one of the places we stayed for a short time was in Lemberg or Lvov or Lviv now. And I was quite surprised. A big, beautiful city. Because the Austrians who ruled there wanted to bring in the Austrian-German influence. And so what they did was they redid the city to look like Vienna with fancy public buildings and palaces and clean streets and wide boulevards. It's really quite, quite interesting. And there were a lot of Jews there, my friends. So it was a city in which you had everything from the Hasidim on the one end to the extreme assimilationists on the other hand. And all this, these groups kind of fought with each other, as I said before, in the 19th century, who should be the real representative of Judaism. And every time there was a, 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 a public position open, all the different factions would fight each other who should get the position. That's how the world looked at that time. Now to our hero, the person who said this week. There are all kinds of rabbis out there, and usually you hear stories, or very often you hear stories, of a certain type, like Ritzel Khan Spector, people like that. You're born to a dirt-poor family. They barely have what to eat. The kid was a genius from uh, early age on. And little by little, you know, he, he, he gets known as Eloy, and then you become a, get married and married a rabbi of a small town, then a bigger town, then a bigger town. And extreme poverty is a part of his youth. And once sooner or later, they get a position in which they get a decent salary and life changes for them and so forth. They, uh, very, very common. But in Galicia, not only there, but in Galicia and other places, you had a very interesting phenomenon because of this class thing I said for this elitism. They had a lot of families in which they had Torah, Gedul, Bamakamechud, as the Gemara calls it. Which means these were rich families, they had a lot of money, and they also had a big tradition of learners. And the result is you got people who were millionaires who were in the rabbinate or in the Rosh Hashiva business or in the learning business simply because they could afford to be, and that's what they liked to do. And that's who Yosef Shaul Nathanson was, the person who became known as the Shaul Meshav. He came from a very wealthy family. All of his life, money was no issue. His pa- because he's rich, he married a rich girl, also the daughter of a big Talmud Chacham in another town. And uh, believe me, since he was born with a silver spoon in his mouth and had the good luck that his father was a big Talmud Chacham and wanted his son to be a big Talmud Chacham, and the son wanted to be a big Talmud Chacham and turned out to be the type of guy who naturally took to the learning of a genius, so he had almost like a perfect world in a certain re- respect, you know, from a yeshivish angle. And... He was married for many years, and then his wife died, he remarried. Both of these women were like millionaires, you know, from rich families, and they ran the money. So he really had it perfect. He liked to sit and learn, and the wife ran the whole show in terms of the finances and the bank and all the rest of it. And it's really true. Lo used to be a boast among some people. He didn't even know what money looks like. Now, I don't know if he literally didn't know what money looks like, but he had no experience in this, because the wife took care of everything. The family took care of everything. And he did not waste his time. Some, what I'm describing, it's hard to say. Suppose, as the philosophers say, suppose you won the Powerball lottery, right? And let's say you're 20, 25 years old or whatever, 15, 25 years old. 
let's say you won the lottery, $100 million, $200 million, these crazy sums we read about in the papers. I think somebody won a billion and a half the other day, isn't that right, in North Carolina. Well, my goodness, now you have the rest of your life. What are you going to do with it? It's a good question. You can do whatever you want. You can sleep till 12 o'clock every day if that's what you feel like doing. You can eat hot dogs and hamburgers for the rest of your life four times a day if that's what you feel like doing. You can look to your stamp collection if that's what you like to do. You can sit in front of the internet and watch old movies forever or new movies forever. I mean, if that's how you wish to spend your life. Let me tell you something. It's a good question. This is what the book of Kohelis is all about. If you have the opportunity to do whatever you want to do, what do you do? Most people would have trouble with that because you don't have a philosophy of life that guides them in what they consider to be the, the right thing to do. It's actually a very uh, big and interesting question. The Epicureans were into this thousands of years ago in ancient Greece. How do you define pleasure in the perfect life if you have the opportunity to do it? Now, uh, you know, you read about sports players, for example, make millions of dollars, but then they ruin their lives because they don't know what to do with the money. They're partying, they invested badly, you know, people take advantage of them. It's really interesting. But on the other hand, some people know what they want to do. And if you're of a certain type, you're lucky. Let's, you could be the type of seller, yes, I like learning. That's what I like to do, 24-7. If I don't have to work and make a living, and that's what you're taking care of, and if I have the opportunity, I like to sit and learn, especially in rights forum, because I can. And that's who he was. He's the type who was born with the silver spoon in his mouth, but happened to take for a love of learning and spend his whole life doing that and had the luxury and the opportunity to do such a thing. The one sad part of his life was he didn't have any children, but which is no small thing. But in addition to that, other than that, I'm sorry, he uh, had the opportunity to indulge in as wide-ranging learning, as they say, 24-7, because that's what he liked to do. Now, with all of this, he grew up normal. That's the most interesting part of the Sholemesha. He grew up to be a no normal person. And uh, as I said before, when he got married at a young age, because he used to get married young, he moved in with the in-laws. The other sister married another big Tamachon, just like him, I think it was. And the two of them sat and learned together for 20 years, a long time. Uh, they wrote Swarm together. And it's almost like, in a certain sense, an ideal word, world. You have two Eloys. They like to learn all day long. And when I say learn, I mean talk in lumdas, argue each other, work out svaris, come up with chedushim, figure out the halachas, you know, the deep and heavy learning. And uh, and they were able to do it because they had the brain. Money was not a problem. Svarim they had. There's no yeshivas in those days, so they can just do it, you know, learn whatever system works for them, which is the best way if you can work it out. And things are going great. Um, but for some reason, as everybody knows, over time, him and the brother-in-law ended up falling out. That can happen. Maybe it was their fault. Maybe it was their wife's fault. Who knows? And each kind of went their own way. So here's somebody that's, let's say, for example, about 30 years old, maybe 35 years old, something like that. And now, uh, that's not young. And he spent all these years learning up a storm. And now what do you do? And you don't want to sit and learn with your brother-in-law all day long as he did until now because now the two of you don't like each other. So what do you do? So he said, I'm going to make a yeshiva of my own type. And I shouldn't even call it yeshiva. I'll make a learning group of my own type. I don't like the way they learn yeshivas, which is three blot here, two blot there. And they do a lot of lumdas and never cover any ground. And they never know what the halach lamais is at the end anyway. And so you could have somebody yeshiva learn getting all year long and they don't know how to do a get. They can learn ksuvas all year long and they've never seen a ksuva. Yeah, they, can, they can read Masechtas Erevin. 
or doing chulin and they've never <laughs> learned how to put up an air of or do or, or, or look at a, a, at the inside of a chicken, you know, that kind of theoretical business. He wasn't built that way. The Galatianos in general weren't built that way. And so what he said was, I want to become an expert in halachal Misa. And within a very short time, he started sending out, you know, answers to people who wrote him questions. And he got a big reputation as a guy who's a gigantic Talmud Chacham in Halachal Misa Posek, as we say, a response writer. And it's amazing. Within a few years, the guy who's living in the middle of Central Europe in Lemberg is getting questions from America, from India, from North Africa, and obviously from all over Eastern Europe. Uh, in Western Europe, is crazy. And for the rest of his life, he died in 1875. So what was he, 65, maybe a little older, maybe 67 years old. It's not clear the year he was born. He didn't live a long life. But um, he was, he, he has, he published uh, eventually his, uh, a chalik of his chuvas response in six big volumes. I mean, it's uh, quite something. It's like 15 different parts and, uh, you know, each one has 200 chuvas in it, so it's very long. From all over the world, in every mikzov tour, in every area of life, because people all over the world heard of him, and they know he's got the guts to paskin something if he sees it the way it is, and he'll call it the way he sees it. And uh, and therefore, he got, as I said before, question everybody, became a big authority, and uh, he gathered around him students, young people, who's, and he said like this, if you're interested in being for yeshiva, then you're not for me. But if you're interested in learning how to learn, and especially uh, learning how to be a posik, halach lamaisa, then sit with me, baby. And he had like a shul or something in Lemberg. And young people of uh, ambitious uh, minds who were from, they wanted to be not just learners, but they wanted to be poskim, they wanted to be dayonim, to be rabbis of cities, things like that. They would sit and learn with him for X number of years, very informally. And what he would do is he said like this, I'm not going to do like the yeshiva, which is you learn the Gemara and the uh, Mepharshim on the Gemara, and chances are you'll never get to the Shulchan Aruch and the Halach Lamaisa, maybe rarely, and then you move on to the next Gemara. I want to go the other way around. Let's learn the Shulchan Aruch or the Rambam or the Tur. And then every time you see a din, let's go backwards, back to the Gemara. And that way you're forced to look at every aspect of the Sugi because you say like this, here's the Rambam Paskin this way. How did he read the Gemara? Was it this way or was it that way? He could have learned a different way. Why did he do it this way? Or the Shulchan Aruch, or the Beis Yosef, or the Mepharshim on the side of the Shulchan Aruch. And the result is, if you stick with him for a couple of years, you learn, number one, a lot of material, because he was big into Bikiyas. He was big into Bikiyas. And the second thing is, you learn how to think halachically, so that you too can one day uh, go into that line. Maybe not like him. You have to be a genius like him. Because, you know, these. I'm talking about somebody who knew everything by heart. You know that type. And um, therefore, you ended up with somebody who the whole world looked to as the Shalos and Shuvah Shoal Lameshev. That's a, a, the title he gave. He wrote a lot of those for him also, but this is the one that most people are familiar with, the one I'm most familiar with. And uh, he's a rabbi's rabbi. And there are several aspects of him that make him stand out because there are a lot of people that, there's not too many people like I'm describing who knew everything and, uh, and, and answered thousands and thousands of Shilas. Uh, I mean, heavy things, but. There are others, but he's very uh, normal, as I said before. Uh, he lived in the middle of Hasidic land, and he was not a Hasid, he was a Misnagid. But on the other hand, he's not a Misnagid like the Vilna that'll burn anybody who's a Hasid. He just didn't want the Hasidim to try to put their shtick on him, and every time they tried to change the Nusach and the Davani, he said, hold your horses, no way. 
or they tried to change any of the other men of Ashkenaz. No way, because in his time, the Hasidic movement was spreading far and wide. And they did what all the minority movements do, which is they say, why don't you be liberal and let everybody have their own different men hug him until they take over. And then they say, you're not allowed to have any other minig except mine. The liberals do it in America when they can do it. The conservatives do it when they can do it. It's just a way that people are. They sound liberal in the beginning, but then once they take over, then they're no longer so tolerant. And uh, you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> people, there were rabbis that were fired in Galicia later on because, listen to this, because they were caught by the Hasidim secretly putting on filling a cholamoid in the house, <laughs> right? The, the, in other words, let's put it this way. The minig Ashkenazis, you put on filling a cholamoid. Maybe you don't make a bracha, that depends. The minig of the Hasidim and the girl, the minig of the Hasidim is you do not put on filling a When the Hasidim start out, they say we should not put on filling a And let, if, of course, the minig is to do so, but if somebody doesn't want to do so, be liberal about it. But once they took over, then they say you're not allowed to put it. I'll tell you again. There were Dayanim and Rabbonim in Galicia that were fired over this. The Shola Mesha was famous for a number of controversies that he engaged in, and he didn't care what anybody said. The most famous, perhaps, that is written about in the journals now is the Machine Matzahs. He's the one that gave the Hetero and the Machine Matzahs. Now, he's not the original one that gave the Hetero. They did in Germany when they came up with the machines. The Hasidim, when they saw this, and some of the very conservative Rabbonim in Eastern Europe Said no, you can't have matzahs uh, made of machines. You know, it has to be by hand, and this is the way we've always done it. And second of all, there are certain halachic questions that we think can be raised in connection with this. And they were shocked that somebody like the Sholem Eishev, who by this time had become the rabbi in Lemberg, he was the rabbi there from 1857, I think, to to his death in 1875, about close to 20 years. He came out and he said, I looked the whole thing over. It looks totally fine to me. And boy, oh boy, they all came down on his head and say, you're wrong. He said, I don't care what anybody says. I'm called the way I see it. You show me where I'm wrong from the Gemara. You show me where I'm wrong from the Shulchan Aruch. I'm interested in a shtick over here. And because he put behind it, that's where it comes from, that people use it. Now, there's still plenty of people that used to hand matzahs. I use hand matzahs on Pesach, not because of anything more with the Shema, it's just because of custom. But uh, he's the one that stood behind it, and he was the big gun, let's put it that way. Um, as I said before, mm-hmm. he wouldn't allow, oh, there's all kinds of things over there. When the Hasidim, let me tell you something, when the Hasidim, you know, blast him, all the rest of it, he basically said like this, I don't allow the Bells of Rebbe to come to Lemberg, because <laughs> he's, he's going to threaten everybody who's, uh, you know, g- g- going with the machine mots, and I think they're okay. Uh, but on the other hand, he actually got along with a lot of other Hasidim, if you know how to learn. So he had very good relationship, for example, with the Sanzarov, with the, the fam- one of the most famous Hasidic leaders in the 19th century. They got along very well indeed. Why? Because for, from the point of view of the Shalom it goes like this. Even though you're a Hasidic rabbi, I see you're a big learner. So in that respect, I respect you. What kind of hat do you wear? If it's just a rabbi, that's nothing. But if it's of a great Talmud Chacham, and the Hasidim had many great rabbis that were great Talmud Chachamim. They certainly did. And so then, then we have what to talk about <laughs> in this way. Uh... He has so many, I don't know where to, where, where to go with this. There's so many Shalos and Shubas in there that are so interesting. He is the one who they wrote to in America in the 1850s in Manhattan. The first question that ever popped up in Jewish history, I think. And that is, can you make a, sh- a church into a shul? You have to understand, in Europe, it was inconceivable that neighborhoods changed and that a place that was a Christian church, as a Christian Europe, would be sold to Jews 
for something so disgusting as a synagogue. I mean, that's a hill of Christianity. It can't happen. In America, they have changing neighborhoods and immigration waves and things like this. And so these Eastern European Jews very early on in the 1850s came to New York, you know, in the Lower East Side, the basement of Chagolo. And they wanted to, to, to and they wanted, had a chance to buy a, a, a Protestant church, a Welsh, a Welsh church, and convert it to a synagogue. And think about it, of all over the world, they wrote to him, you know, all the way to Lemberg, because they know he's the big posek. And uh, in his time, musical Hunter was still very young. He's the big posek, and he's the one you can turn to with any Shiloh, and he will call it as he sees it, meaning he's not going to go for the right or the left to call it the way the halach is. And he said, what kind of a church is it? <laughs> and they had to explain to him what a Protestant church is in America. You have to understand, in Poland, in Galicia, no such thing as Protestant. It's either uh, Catholic or Greek Orthodox. I mean, that's what they got over there. And, uh, you know, he says, what about the statues? Well, there aren't any statues, you know. What 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 do they do? They do high mass, you know. It sounds like a vodazor. No, they don't do that. They just sing, and uh, sing hymns and whatever. And after it's all over, he says, "Yeah, you can do. It. Why not? You can you you can you can buy that place. Actually, you're doing it a favor. It was a church before, and now it's a shul. That became the basis for hundreds of cases across the United States, in which they purchased uh, church buildings and turned them into synagogues. Which I say before is something that would be like inconceivable, you know, in 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 earlier times." Oh boy, there are so many other questions that got in there. He, I have to tell you this story, now it comes to mind. He, as I said before, never had to worry about money. So therefore, he didn't know much about money. And his wife, on the other he married two very chashva women from the, from the female elites, you know, the, the, the daughters of rabbis, that kind of thing. That's, that's how it worked. They were, uh, you know, a class-driven society. Although he was a very nice person, he, by the way, f- founded a soup kitchen, uh, which was like a new idea in Lemberg for the poor, and he made it his business to eat lunch there every day. Think about that. He's the rich guy and the rabbi and the head of the community and the big chashev. He wants to eat in the soup kitchen to give it a little chashivas and make the poor people feel better because he's, you know, he was sitting and, and, and kibitz with them and, and so forth. Once he finished kibitzing them, we went back totally into learning because he was that type. But the story to get back to it is his wife, when Yom Kippur used to give some tzedakah out or whatever, so she gave him a gold coin and a silver coin. And she said, when you go to Shul, give the Gabai the gold coin, because that's my minute to give him whenever you Kipper, and give the silver coin to the shamus. And he did the other way around. He came to Shul. You know, I'm sure his head was totally learning. He probably didn't know where he was. It was Kipper anyway. And he gave the wrong guy the silver one, the wrong guy the other one. And the, and, and the Gabai came to complain. He said, are you, uh, you know, every year give me a gold coin and this uh, a silver one? And she said, whoa. Why did you give the opposite of what I said? He said, I thought I, I gave what you told me to. She said, give the gold coin to the Gabai and the other one to the Shams. He said, well, I gave the bigger one to the Gabai. I figured if it's bigger, it must be worth more money. You know, Obviously, the gold coin was the small one and the, and the silver coin was the big one. Is this a famous story to show you how out of it he was? But not in matters which were no gay to That he knew what's going on all over the world. And uh, here's a good one. Um, it comes to mind. Lagbomer. Where does Lagbomer come from? Nobody knows exactly. Where'd they make this big holiday? And today Lagbomer is the fastest growing Jewish holiday that I know. The fastest growing holiday in, in Judaism. Maybe Uman is a number two, but Lagbomer is number one. And the min, it's an old minute from many centuries that people go to Miron in uh, Eretz Yisrael and uh, Kabbalistic custom, whatever, and they buy a suit, like a nice suit, $500 suit, 
at the store, and you burn it at the cover of Hashem Yom Ben Yochai. That sounds strange. You burn the suit at the cover of Hashem Yochai. And I'm sure they get a couple of listic reasons for it. And this and the other. I mean, one could talk about this. There are some examples of this in the Tanakh, actually, but I won't go into that. Uh, and they asked the Shalmesha, what do you think about it? And he said, this is crazy. It's Maltashkas. If you have a suit, and you don't want to give it to a poor person. There's a bigger nachas for Shimbi Yochai in heaven if you give a suit to a person that doesn't have any clothes than if you go and burn it. See, he, he didn't have that kind of Hasidic or Kabbalistic uh, mentality. You know, very practical, very down-to-earth. And uh, he got involved with the Corfu Esrogam. Uh, I think I think I've gone too long already. So I just want to say that the Sholemeshev isn't for everybody. It's six fat volumes packed with shalach and shuvahs all over the world, and a lot of it is a very heavy lumdus. But as I said before, his lumdus is all connected to halach lamaisa, you know, to, to to find the practical answer for the questions, whether it's a you know Shabbos or Agunas or you name it. And recently. And it's always in, printed in, in these old-fashioned print. It's very hard to read, like chicken scratchings. And therefore, it's a little forbidding unless somebody had a reason to plow through it. But I can tell you that in the last year or two, somebody in Israel is now putting out a brand new edition of the Sholem Eshev. It's nice, big, fancy letters and uh, a completely new printing. And some Chaya to read. It's got nice notes and some Chaya to read. It's not for everybody, but it's coming out slowly but surely. Uh, I don't know how many volumes it's going to have. And uh, even if you just took the trouble in your local shul or wherever to pull one out and look at the shalas, this is what you can do with shalas and chubas if you want to have fun. You don't have to go through the answers, which are long sometimes, and it's not for everybody. But the questions aren't so hard usually, and the questions are practical questions. And you have every area in life in his response, I can tell you right now. You have mothers who, who, you know, whose babies die in the middle of the night and should they do penance? They, I mean, they, they have all sorts of questions. Is the, does the midst of living in Eretz Yisrael apply nowadays? I mean, I, I, I'm not doing justice. I can't do justice to it. What kind of esrogim do you use nowadays? Can you trust the Greek esrogim? I mean, it's all questions in, in every area. Um, and if you do that, then I think you'll find it very interesting. And this will be a nice tribute to his memory. Because I said before, he didn't have any kids. And I'm sure he, he knew that's probably why he published a whole lot. Uh, I would just say he was a person born with a silver spoon in his mouth, but he made the most of it. Uh, his parents, you know, this is the old-fashioned Jewish way. The parents, I guess, oh, are you too cold? Put on a scarf. You know, you're too hot. All of his life, he's always worried about his health. And, you know, he's always going for cures and for the, the you know, to go to Marienbad and Carlsbad and those kind of places, because that's what you did in the 19th century. And the trouble for people like this is they can't take a vacation. You know what I'm saying? You see from his tubas, I went on vacation, I don't know any swarm, but 55 letters came in the mail for me today. Imagine that. Suppose, by, to use a modern example, you go, I don't know, to, to Florida, you go to, you know, to, to, to Miami Beach, to Bell Harbor, someplace like that. And you go down to, to you, you're trying to take off a few days. You go down, they say, is any mail came? He said, yeah, 55 letters. <laughs> and the 55 letters aren't, how are you doing? 50 letters, each one's a Shiloh from someplace in the world with some hard question which says, can you please answer this as much as possible? And then he's not going to go to the beach. He's going to sit in the hotel room and he's going to spend all day long writing out from memory because he knew all the swarm by heart, you know, write out the whole thing from memory. What's the answer to this? What's the answer to that? What happened to the vacation? You're missing the point. For someone like this, that is his vacation. Anyway, time's up.
For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.